All right. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on tonight's show. I have a returning guest. His name is Hugh Turley. We talked back in October 2020, and you can go back and check that out on my iTunes uh, about the book, The Murder of Vince Foster, uh, America's Would-Be Dreyfus Affair. Again, The Murder of Vince Foster, America's Would-Be Dreyfus Affair, and a very interesting book about uh, murder of Vince Foster. And then I also talked to the author of, who was involved in this book, his name is David Martin, but it was about the assassination of James Forstall. We talked back in October, 2019. And uh, this book we're gonna talk about tonight, if you can see it on YouTube, that you can see the cover of it, is titled The Martyrdom of Thomas Merton, an Investigation. It wasn't somebody who I knew much about. I'm very familiar with the 60s history and he died in December 10th of 1968, a very uh, time of very serious turbulence and chaos in the United States. And uh, so I'm delighted to have Hugh back. And he's going to talk about this book and talk and kind of give people an idea who Thomas Merton was and how important a figure he was. So Hugh Turley, are you there? I am here and I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have listened to the last show, can you talk about uh, your background, how you became interested in this, your relationship with Dave Martin, and well, how Dave, you... Dave and I collaborated on the, the Vince Foster investigation. Dave had gone to college with uh, Vincent Foster, and I met him <laughs> while I was looking into that case. It was just as an amateur, uh, but I, I ended up helping uh, an attorney and his client attach 20 pages of evidence to the final report on Vincent Foster's death. And I, I got a lot of experience in that case in, in looking into uh, official government records and documents and just doing an investigation. And I was encouraged by Dave Martin and others to, uh, to, to look at Merton's death. They said, you should look into that. And I finally did. Around 2012, I contacted somebody and asked about some documents. And I, in 2017, I really got going on it. <clears throat> and I... And just for people who may not know, like I wasn't very familiar with Thomas Merton. Can you talk about him as a figure he was in his a, background? He was a huge figure in the 20th century in uh, Christianity. Uh, he he was not raised as a, as a Catholic or a Christian. He was uh, the son of, of two parents who were artists. He was born in 1915 in southern France. Uh, his mother was Quaker and uh, his father was uh, a nominal Episcopalian. And uh, uh, during World War One, the family moved back to her, the mother's uh, home where their parents and the boys, he and his, Merton and his younger brother remained with the parents because his mother died at the age when Merton was only six. And uh, he, then he went back with his father. He went back to Europe, ended up in a boarding school in France, later in England. Uh, his father died when he was 15. So he was essentially an orphan. Then his parents turned him over to a guardian since he was a student in uh, England. And uh, he did some traveling in England and was very good at language. Uh, he got a scholarship to Clare College in Cambridge. Uh, and uh, his first year, he just was a party boy. He, he drank and uh, spent money and caroused and seduced women and, and got in all kinds of trouble and in terrible grades. And the guardian said enough is enough. And he sent him back to... Uh, United States to the grandparents. And uh, from there, he went into uh, uh, Columbia U University in New York City and tried to turn his life around. And he, he just changed uh, and started becoming a serious student. He, he studied uh, philosophy, psychology, uh, became a very good writer. He was writing book reviews, and, and I think he worked with the school paper. And he... Uh, he met some professors there and, and people that, that influenced him into looking into different religions. And uh, he looked he read about a, a number of different uh, Eastern religions, but then he kind of fell into Christianity and ultimately Catholicism. And I think it was 1938 when he was converted into the Catholic church, but he really had no Catholic upbringing or Christian upbringing. He uh, wanted to become a priest almost immediately. And, they told him he was too early. You know, you just converted. Right. I think he was only 24, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. that's, that's about right. And then he went to uh, St. Bonaventure University, a Franciscan university, and he was a teaching there. Uh, and a friend encouraged him to make a retreat down to the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, which is a Trappist monastery. And he, he went down there and was just hooked. Uh, and he wanted to become a Trappist monk uh, the following year. Uh, 
uh, I guess, fall semester, he got permission to leave the school. He went down to the Abbey on December 10th. He arrived. And three days later, on December 13th, he was admitted in. And that was uh, when he became a Trappist monk. At, at first, uh, he was just very happy to be there. And uh, But the abbot, uh, it was a very nice abbot at the time. His name was Abbot Dunn. And he he learned that Merton had been a writer at college. He said, maybe you should do some writing about, uh, you know, monks in our, our uh, histories so that had someone become saints. You could write about them and do some translating, which he did. And then Merton said, you know, I really like to write my autobiography, which seems kind of early for such a young man, but he really felt that his life was complete by that time because he had come through this journey uh, and, he, and he wrote this biography called The Seven Story Mountain, which was an instant bestseller. And it, it, it was compared to uh, the Confessions of St. Augustine, a modern version of it, where you have a, a young man who led a decadent life and then suddenly becomes a very important Christian figure. And at the time, in the early uh, 50s and 60s, uh, in the United States, there was a, a Catholic uh, bishop, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, who was on television. And almost every Catholic family watched that program on Tuesday nights, and almost every Catholic family had copies of Merton's writings in their homes. I mean, he was very well known because his uh, book, Seven Story Mountain, he sold like a million copies, and it was the first time that a, a Catholic book like that was on the New York Times bestseller list, and it was on there for the entire year of 1949 into 1950. Three million paperback copies, so that's an enormous amount of books. Three million huge. paperback, 600,000 hardcovers, so really significant uh, impact. So. Yeah, I think he ended up writing about 60 books, but uh, that's uh, that that's that's really who he is, and that's why he was so very well known. And then in 1960s, he's, he became a critic of of the uh, Vietnam War and of nuclear war, and he saw the danger of nuclear war, and he became an opponent of war. And, but uh, probably more significantly, it would probably got him in more trouble than anything, although it's not as well known, is his uh, his take on the media as a propaganda organ. He was very attuned to the fact that the press was shaping public opinion. Uh, one thing I read by him that really impressed me was in a book he had called Con Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, where he, just a week, I think November 30th, after the Kennedy assassination, he wrote that he just found it unbelievable that people would think that Lee Harvey Oswald actually killed President John F. Kennedy. He said the whole thing is people just want it settled and they want it to be over. But he said, is this going to be good enough? And I think he's one of the only people I ever read about that ever questioned the Kennedy assassination. It's so early with just in just a week. And this is remarkable to me because he's living in a monastery where he doesn't have a television. He doesn't have a radio. He's not reading a newspaper. He gets mail from people and he hears from the outside world, but he's not tuned in to the news, but he doesn't believe the news. In fact, uh, one of my quotes I like by him is that the hardest people to propagandize are those who are not interested in the news. Well, and that's, a good point, that's very, he's very astute that way. I mean, he's just a remarkable man. Right. So 60 books and notice him. If you can see it on YouTube, he's wearing, I believe that's his Trappist monk they call it a cloister, is that right? Or I forgot what is it's, it's it. It was a cloistered community. It's like very like a very much like a medieval community. It was very strict. It was called the. It's actually the uh, formal name is the Order of Cistercians Strict Observance, and the, the short name for them they call them the Trappists. But it's it's uh, they live in poverty. They don't eat meat. They you know sleep on the floor practically. It's uh, it's it's pretty uh, rough uh, life, and they lived off the land. Of course. When Merton uh, was there, uh, the, the original abbot died, and a new abbot came in named Abbot James Fox. And he and Merton had a very stormy uh, relationship. Uh, Fox was a Harvard Business School graduate, and he was uh, kind of focused on turning over some money in the abbey. And uh, he was trying to get the cheese, a cheese business going, mail-order cheese mail order fruitcakes and so on. They're actually very famous for fudge still, actually. They fudge, sell yeah, they do this. They are. But then uh, this none of this is in our book, but I just this is things I've learned since. But I know that that uh, Merton uh, wrote in a letter to one of his friends, he said that he was an, an asset of the corporation. 
And of course, you can imagine the, the royalties that came in from his books. Uh, they didn't want him to leave that abbey. I believe it. Because he was a, a big money maker. And he wasn't interested in the money. It's really ironic how it turned out because he, he could have been a successful writer outside the monastery, but he, he went in the monastery. He didn't want any money, but he ended up making them a lot of money for the monastery. Yeah, it had to have been in the millions, yeah. Probably still today. Uh, I bet those re revenues are still accruing. I, I can give you an idea because just recently uh, there was a man released from Kentucky uh, who uh, had been embezzling money from the Abbey. And he got an early release because of COVID-19. And the governor let people that were not dangerous uh, criminals, rapists and murderers, they, they, they let these other people out. He'd gotten a 20-year sentence, but he got out after about three years. And as uh, a condition of his uh, sentence, he had to pay back the money he took from the Abbey. Well, he took a million dollars over a six-year period. And, uh, you know, you can imagine if, if you could skim off that much money, how big is the budget? <laughs> I mean, if they didn't notice for six years that he was skimming for about $14,000 a month, uh, the revenues must be large. And that's a lot of fruitcakes and fudge, if you don't mind. It's true. It's true. So so Merton is this kind of important figure. He has a lot of credibility, and he ends up traveling to Thailand in 68. Can you lay the background for that whole event? Uh, sure. Well, that's, that's very interesting that he ended up there because for 20 years, or actually 27 years, he was never allowed to leave the monastery except to go to maybe the dental appointment or a doctor's appointment in Louisville. He did make one short trip to New York City to see D.T. Suzuki, and uh, he was told not to visit any of his friends or see anybody on that trip except D.T. Suzuki. And then he went to Collegeville, Minnesota once, but his abbot went along, and that was to meet a psychiatrist named Gregory Zilborg. And his abbot had conspired with this uh, psychiatrist to tell Merton that he was a little nutty and that he was, uh, you know, not quite right mentally and that uh, the, the abbot, uh, his excuse for not letting Merton travel anywhere was that he said he needed to be under my care. And he got a lot of invitations. He was invited to travel to uh, Rome and, and do some research there. And he was invited to, to, to visit other monasteries and give retreats and take part in retreats, but he was never permitted to go anywhere. And then suddenly uh, just before he dies, that abbot steps down, a new abbot steps up, and Merton gets permission to travel to Thailand. After all these years of never being able to go anywhere, he's suddenly able to travel. And he went to the West Coast. He went up to Alaska, and then he went down into the – I think he went through India. And uh, he was about to go to Japan after Thailand, but he never made it out of Thailand. He died there. But it, it is a little suspicious that after all that time, the first real trip he takes is his final trip. And so he's in Thailand, right? Kind of as the Vietnam War is really at its height. I mean, there's it's peaking. Oh, yeah. There's violence. There's bombings. The right. planes are was, taking off from Thailand to bomb all kinds of stuff. Right. It was a it was a busy place uh, for the American military. We we did a lot of our bombing. Almost eighty percent of the bombing of North Vietnam came out of Thailand. We had military bases there. Uh, the military did R and R recreation. Uh, there were assassination squads that were trained called the Phoenix Program. It was run by the CIA, and they did a lot of assassinations throughout Southeast Asia. And they had assassins all over the place. And he went into that area, which was a very dangerous place for him to go, particularly when he's a critic of the American news media. I don't. Some people say, well, I don't think they killed him because he opposed the Vietnam War. And they're probably right, because other people did. Uh, there were, there were other other priests and clergy and, and so on that were outspoken. But if you have a voice and uh, your voice is, is heard and you have credibility, that can make you a target. Martin Luther King opposed the war and spoke out against it. Robert F. Kennedy did. And, and uh, I know King drew 250,000 people down on the mall in Washington, D.C. And if you can draw a crowd and you have a message that opposes the CIA mission, uh, you become a threat. And, well, I mean, some people think that MLK was killed not for his civil rights, but for his opposition to Vietnam. Absolutely. Like he, so, Absolutely. so it makes sense. I mean, you can see how that same kind of mentality could be directed towards Merton. Right. 
Right. And if someone that someone like myself who has no microphone, nobody listens to me, I'm not a threat to anybody because nobody is listening to me. But when these men, men like Merton and Robert F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King, they are uh, they get the attention of the, uh, the people in power. But it's also important, if I can just add one more thing, Hugh, is that MLK was killed April 4th, 1968 and RFK June 6th, 1968. June 5th. So, Okay, sorry, June 5th. Well, maybe he died on the 6th. You're right. I, I don't know. I think he might have been shot on the 5th and down on the 6th. But, I think so. uh, I'm just saying that these are sad. I, mean, I believe both of those they were heavily government were really – the government was involved in both of those deaths. So Right. Then Merton dies on December 10th, 1968. Sorry. Yes. Yes, all three of them died that year. And that, that was part of the, the spark that got me looking at this uh, death because I – I wondered about it because he was so much like uh, Robert F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. He was so similar that I thought, what? A, that's a strange coincidence that three of them would die that year. But Merton's death was always reported to be have been an accidental electrocution, that he had stepped out of a shower and touched a fan and was electrocuted. Nobody ever questioned it. And to my surprise and to David Martin's surprise, Nobody ever looked at it. I mean, I was absolutely shocked when I started to look into this because the first thing I did was to try to secure the death documents. And uh, I obtained the death certificate, the doctor's certificate, which is like the coroner's report. Uh, there's an embassy report from the U.S. Embassy in Bangkok and a police report. And with the exception of the police report, these documents had never been found or discussed or even mentioned. And I, I wanted to get the autopsy report. I found out that there was no autopsy. But uh, interestingly, on the, the doctor's certificate, and it says that the body was taken to the hospital for an autopsy as prescribed by law. And on the death certificate, on the back of it, there's a handwritten note in Thai from a Thai police officer who said that the body indeed had been taken to the hospital for an autopsy. Well, that's not true. I mean, that, those are that's, those are false statements. So these documents have false information on them. The one document from the uh, the doctor's certificate had a note at the bottom of it uh, that an embassy official had put on there because they translated it. And in the translated copy, it said, this is not a part of, it's this one right here that you're showing. At the very bottom, it's a little darker ink. That's a, a statement by the embassy official said that this document is not correct. It says that autopsy was performed at the hospital, and it was not. So uh, right on this one document, you've got a contradiction where the Thai official says the body was taken for an autopsy, and then an embassy official is saying that the body was not taken for an autopsy. Well, that's a big red flag there. I mean, what's going on here? There's something wrong. Uh, and and these, these things had just never uh, been seen before. I sent these documents to the uh, Merton Center at, at Bellarmine University, and Dr. Paul Pearson told me he'd never seen these before. He was happy to get them. He wanted to have them in his collection. And that's well, what they were Just to kind of interrupt, but what, I thought Merton died. My understanding, this tells you the power of propaganda, was he was in a bath and a hand fan fell in the bath and he was electrocuted. So this book oh. completely changed my opinion about that. Well, it, it's, that's an interesting story because if you look at on our website, we have a, uh, a list of what we call the standard account. And on the, on the website, we have about... Well, there must be close to 50 different Merton scholars there, and they all tell how he died in different ways. Andrew Young uh, uh, said that he was in a bathtub and a hairdryer fell in the bathtub. Well, imagine a bald-headed monk with a hairdryer in the bathtub. It doesn't make sense. Uh, recently, uh, just late last year, an Irish bishop had said that Merton died when he was electrocuted by an air conditioner. Uh, a Dominican uh, friar said that he had died when he was electrocuted by a floor lamp. And, it, and someone else said a, a radio, and, and, and it just goes on and on. Sometimes it's a shower. Sometimes it's a bath. Uh, sometimes he slips in the bath, slips on the tile. It's just sort of like make up your own favorite version, whatever you think is going to sound plausible, and you can insert your own uh, item. Well, um, here's the other interesting thing is that I think the story that I had read was that he was in a seedy motel somewhere. So, right. like, the whole environment of this death happened because right. you kind of – Bangkok and Thailand might bring up seedy things, so exactly. it kind of it was kind of like a propaganda thing. But right. it's not true. He was at some kind of Catholic 
like very nice kind of. Oh, it was a very fancy place. It was a, it was a, uh, a Red Cross retreat center, and it had all kinds of amenities. It was it was it was very nice. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a Burton scholar named Bonnie Thurston, who uh, published a book I think just last year, and, and she gave that description of Thailand. She said, "If you've ever traveled in the third world, you know how dangerous electricity can be." I mean. You know, she's. This is after our book has been out for three years, and people are still trying to sell this story that he was in a seedy hotel somewhere. That Interesting. Was so you've heard that too, okay? Because okay. Yeah, it, 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 oh yeah, these are all. It's frequently they say he died in a hotel in Bangkok. He was not in a hotel. He was not in Bangkok. He was about twenty miles south of Bangkok in a small town called Samut Prakarn, and he was at a very nice facility with all kinds of. Uh, Amenities. amenities and kind of bungalows, right? Kind of like independent. Yeah, pool, gardens. Uh, it was very nice. Yeah, air conditioning in the big main room, you know, where they were, where they met. But it was it was very nice. So, so he, was, he was found. I mean, the other thing is like the truth is, is that the, the fan that supposedly killed him was fairly sizable. It was about three feet in length. I mean, maybe you can describe the scene in greater detail. Well, I think, well, he was found in a cottage, uh, that, that housed four people, and and there was a, the cottage had two people upstairs and two downstairs, and there was a half bath off of Burton's room, and then there was a shower that you accessed in the from the lobby kind of hallway. So he would have to leave his room to get to the shower, and he shared that shower with a Filipino monk who was on the same floor. He was also on the first floor, and their rooms had doors and partitions, but the partitions were not solid like a wall. They were just screen. It's like if you put two by fours posts from the floor to ceiling, and then you mounted window screen on them, you know, to keep the bugs out. And then you had a doorway into the, with the screen door, you know, into the, uh, the lobby, but they, they were separated by some screen partitions. And then it, they said they hung uh, bed sheets just to have some privacy, but you could really see in each other's rooms if you wanted to, you know, peek around the, the bed sheets, you could see if somebody was in their room or not. But it was uh, semi private, but you could, not auditorially, the Filipino said when Merton was in his room, he could hear his feet pitter patter when he walked around. So they were, from a hearing point of view, they could hear each other uh, very well. And it was like you're in the same room with the person auditorially. Now, these men, uh, one of them went to a sightseeing, and the uh, the Filipino returned with another monk from Belgium, and they were at the cottage probably just a few minutes ahead of Merton. Uh, I mean, Merton was at the, in the the Belgian got there first. The Filipino was walking behind them about five minutes behind, and he saw them going to the cottage. And when the Filipino entered, he didn't see anybody because Merton had gone to his room, and this other guy had gone upstairs apparently. And the uh, Filipino went, uh, took off his habit, then he went in to brush his teeth. The uh, Belgian came down and said, did you hear a shout? And this Filipino said, no, I didn't hear anything. He said, well, I thought I heard a shout. And he didn't look in on Merton. The guy just went back upstairs. Well, a couple hours later, uh, the Belgian guy's back downstairs again. He's telling the Filipino, I think something's happened to Father Merton. Now, in this two hours, this Filipino did not, hear Merton move at all. So he, he, there wasn't even a sound from his room, but he did hear the guy upstairs who was pacing the floor continually, opening and closing his door. He was a very suspicious character. His name was Francois de Grun. The Filipino's name was Father Celestine Say. Now when this de Grun character comes down and says, I think something's happened to Father Merton, come look and see. The Filipino Father Say comes over and looks in. They see Merton on the floor with a fan on top of him. The uh, Belgian, de Grun says, I'm going to go for help, and he takes off. And as soon as he leaves the cottage, he bumps into two other monks that were coming back from a swim, and he tells them that Merton's had an accident. He's the first person to say it was an accident. Right, so that, so that idea is planted right away. Right. right, and those two guys rush to the cottage, and the three of them, they reached in around this little louvered uh, door, and they, they could just undo the latch. There was no key. You could just un undo the lock with your hand, and they entered. And immediately, uh, one of these monks said, don't touch anything. He's already dead. And the, uh, the other monk had tried to move the fan, but he, as soon as he touched it, he got a shock, and he recoiled. He didn't move it. He just got a, a zap. Uh, 
so the Filipino unplugged the fan, and then one of the monks told the Filipino, you should get your camera and take some photographs because we want to show the police how we found him because they thought it was very suspicious. It just, it just didn't look right. I mean, this fan on top of this person is very unusual. It's a, I think the fan was about maybe five feet tall. It was a Hitachi fan. It was very good quality product. It was made from Japan. They make good stuff. It's like a standing fan. Standing fan, yes. And then they, so the Filipino went to his room, brought his camera back, and uh, the older generation will remember that in those days, when we, before we had cell phone cameras, uh, we had these things called 35 millimeter cameras with film, and you had to adjust the exposure of the film. So if you had, if you didn't have it set right in indoors without a flash bulb, it could be too dark and the picture wouldn't turn out. So you might want to allow more light in and have a longer exposure. So he shot two pictures at different settings, and only one of them came out, the lighter one. The other one was too dark. And after he took these pictures, uh, by this time another monk had come in because they went to get the, the head guy. His name was Rembert Weekland, And he showed up and said, don't take any more pictures. At the same time, a, a nun arrived who was also a medical doctor because the Belgian had gotten all the way down to the main building and told everybody down there. And she rushed up thinking there was something she could do. And uh, the witnesses saw a bleeding wound on the back of Merton's head. Now, interesting thing about this wound is it's not mentioned in the police report and the autopsy, or there's no autopsy, but the doctor's report or the death There's no mention of the head wound, but there was a, a wound on the back of his head that had bled. So when the police arrive about two hours later and the medical doctor's with him, he announces that he's going to call this a cardiac failure. And he said, we're going to do that for convenience. He said, because we won't have any problems. Well, the Filipino heard that and thought, well, this isn't right. You know, I mean, we're not even examining the body yet. What about the fan and everything? See? So he didn't tell him about his photographs. And he, and he wrote later in a letter that he said if he had told him about the photographs, he thought the police would have confiscated his camera. So he kept his mouth shut about the photos. And he went back to the Philippines, and they were developed. And then he wrote to the uh, Mertens Abbey in Gethsemane in Kentucky, and he told them that he had a photograph that turned out. And he said, I, I want you to see it. And he said, I want you to tell me what the autopsy said, because he thought there'd been an autopsy. It had to be, right? Well, there was no autopsy. And the, the Abbey in Gethsemane was uh, just uh, alarmed and uh, that this photo was out there. And John Howard Griffin, who some people might remember, wrote the book Black Like Me. He was at the Abbey at the time. Uh, he spent a lot of time down there. He was going to be the original biographer of Merton. And he was there, and this fellow, Brother Patrick Hart, and then the abbot, James Fox, or no, the new abbot, it was going to be the new abbot, Flavian Burns. These, these men wrote back and forth, and, and they discussed this. They thought, well, we, you know, we really, these photographs have to be secured. So they, they contacted the Filipino and said, send us the photo negatives. We have to have them so we can protect them because we don't want these to fall into hands and people could put them out and, you know, they're very private. So the Filipino sent the photograph negatives, the whole strip. They wanted the whole strip. He sent them the strip with the one that didn't turn out. It all went to the Abbey of Gethsemane. And that was the last of that. No, but they never told anybody about the photographs. Uh, it was a secret. And eventually uh, they would write about it, but they, they, they misrepresented it. Uh, this guy, Michael Mott, wrote an authorized biography of Merton. And in his book, he said that the photograph was taken uh, after the scene had been disturbed, that police had come and people moved things around. And then this, then this photograph was taken. Well, that's not true because the Filipino wrote several letters telling people that, that the photos represent the scene exactly as he found it. He said that he told us to the abbot when he wrote to the Abbey, he said, you have a photograph of the body exactly as it was found before anything was disturbed. Well, they misrepresented that. They could have poo-pooed it in case the photo ever got out. They didn't want anybody to think it was worth anything. So they, they just sort of made it a sequence of events different. Well, nobody knew what, about the photographs. They sort of like just disappeared for 50 years. Well, when I was doing my research and I was finding letters and correspondence from people, I found the Filipino had sent these things to the Abbey. 
and uh, I was in a box of uh, documents up at uh, Columbia University, the papers of John Howard Griffin. And what do you know? I found the negative strip up there with the pictures. And uh, I photographed it with my cell phone camera using my computer as a, a black backlight because I wasn't sure the library would let me have it. If they knew what it was, I'd probably never let it out. So I took what I could of it, and then I requested the library send me a print of these pictures, which they did. And it was like 17 megabytes, huge file, very high-quality TIFF file. And because of our modern technology, they brought the, the two dark photograph. They were able to bring that up so you could see it. So now we've got two photographs of Merton's body from two different angles, exactly as it was found. And one of the interesting things about the two photographs is when he's lying on the on the floor there, he's wearing shorts, which, you know, with these stories about the shower don't work because nobody takes a shower or bath with their shorts on. So he's wearing shorts. The Filipino also wrote in letters that, he, that Merton did not take a shower. He knew he didn't take a shower because they're on the same floor and he can hear everything. And he took a shower, but he never, he said Merton may have been planning to take a shower, but he never thought he did. And then there's a clothes rack in the corner of the room. It's like the 45 degree angle there. And Merton's left shoulder is under the clothes rack. There's, you know, those little dowels, like little rods where you hang your clothing on. Well, you know, if you fall down, you know, you don't slide under something if you're dead. Plus, when he when he's lying there on the floor, he's lying perfectly straight. And if, if the person falls down, they usually go down in a heap, and they try to break their fall. So if you're falling backwards, you usually throw your arms out, you know, to break your fall. It's just a natural instinctive reaction. Right. He's lying on his back, like with his arms at his sides, right? Exactly. With this long thing lying across it. I with mean, it's almost like you're back in note. Uh, uh, Vince Foster territory of like a body, how you would think in the movies it would look, not right. in real life. It doesn't look like that. It just doesn't look like that. And on top of that, this fan is in a position across his pelvis. And the, the one monk that came in, his, his name was Egbert Donovan. He's one of the first on the scene. He wrote in a letter that he said, I don't believe that Merton's hands could have been touching that fan and landed in the position that they were found. So the nun that was a medical doctor, she thought he'd been electrocuted by that fan, but she was puzzled because she said, how did the fan get there? Why, why is this fan? It just doesn't make any sense. And, uh, you know, to have a heart attack and have a fan land on top of you, which also, incidentally, they found out the fan had a faulty wire installed in it. How did that get installed? Because he's using the fan for two days, and suddenly it's, it's a fan that gives you a shock. Well, None of this adds up. There's a real problem here. And to get a heart attack and, and get electrocuted at the same time, uh, my co-author Dave Martin said is a bit like, is, is, is like stepping on a venomous snake at the same time you're struck by lightning. It's just incredible. Unbelievable, really. Uh, and it doesn't, it, none of it makes any sense. And on top of that, they made up these stories about the shower. See, this, the shower and the water were not added to his death until 1973. Five years after his death, his Abbey started this story that he'd taken a shower and he was wet. Well, why, you know, if this was just a straight up accident or a straight up heart attack, you don't need to make up stories. See? And then there were false documents. There were documents that we discovered that were, that were not genuine. Uh, one of them I'll just mention briefly was supposed to be a witness statement of one of the first three monks on the scene. And in his witness statement, he says that the Belgian entered the room with him. Well, the Belgian went on down to the main building. Francois de Grun did not go in the room with him. And it wasn't just a, a, a casual slip up because at the end of his statement, he says the four of us saw that he was dead. Well, there were only three. There's the Filipino and the other two monks. So this is a false document. It has a lot of false information in it. And you don't need to create false documents to cover up something that doesn't need to be covered up. So, Right. And so, like, you, it started right from the very beginning. And there's all kinds of other people. Even you said Francois de Grun was acting super suspicious and very, nervous. Very suspicious. A lot of people read the book think he's involved. And he, clearly, he, 
I don't know that I think he may be too nervous to have been uh, involved in actually killing Merton, but he may have assisted in bringing him to the to the place where he was going to be killed. But he he was clearly uh, very nervous and, and uh, is just a very suspicious character. And you said that you couldn't even find a trace of him. He went back to Belgium somewhere and disappeared. Like that's very strange yeah. too, because yeah, usually those guys are easy to follow, especially in the Catholic Church. Well, I don't know. One of the one uh, one member of a monastic community told me one time. He said, "He said, Turley says there's even men in our community that we want we don't want people to know about. I mean, some people are an embarrassment. It's almost like if you have a family member that's a little bit odd, you know, you you just you just don't talk about everybody in your family because sometimes you have a family member that's a little bit different. This guy was clearly one of these people that they didn't want to talk about. They don't want to talk about. So right. how? I mean, so then he passes away." And that story is, I mean, it's unbelievable, really, because they that whole the truth about the simple events of what happened got totally manipulated, right? So, I mean, right now, what's interesting now? I mean, when when Dave Martin and I wrote this book, um, we had the best uh, intentions for the Abbey of Gethsemane where Martin lived, I and mean, we we had hoped that you know whatever transpired fifty years ago. Those monks have gone on and passed on. There's new people there. We didn't want to make them look bad. So we, we didn't want to say anything bad about the monks at the monastery. So we kind of put the blame on the, the abbey leadership at the time. But uh, one of them was still living, uh, Father, uh, or his brother, Brother Patrick Hart. He was still living when I was doing my research, and I contacted him. And he told me on a voicemail uh, when I asked him, what evidence did he have that Merton took a shower? He admitted that there was no evidence that Merton took a shower, but he said it was very hot there. So he probably did, but you know, there was no evidence. He just made that up. And the longer I looked at it after the fact, I realized that really the story that Merton died by accident, that did not originate in Thailand. The Thai authorities said he died of cardiac failure and the Thai newspaper said he died of cardiac failure. It was the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, 6,000 miles away or more, that invented the story that Merton had died by accidental electrocution. It came from the Abbey. The accident story originated there, and then they added the water five years later. And, gotcha. and, and so they, they are the ones that are have been leading the cover-up. And to this day, at their website, it still says Merton died of accidental execution. They're not giving up any ground on this. They're sticking with their story. In fact, I'll tell you something that the uh, the original abbot, the one that wouldn't let Merton travel, Abbot Fox, he sent a letter out on February 1st, 1969, just about two months after Merton's death, to inform the monks that were traveling abroad, that were in Rome or South America somewhere, of Merton's death. And he wrote in his letter that Merton died by accident. He said he was either, uh, you know, trying to move a fan or he was trying to fix a fan or, you know, take your pick, really. Uh, and then he had this accident. And they said he was in his bare feet on this uh, floor. And that's the letter he sent out. Well, what's interesting is that letter got reprinted in 1981 in the uh, Trappist you know, uh, they have a, a annual publication of Cistercian. I guess maybe it's quarterly. It's the Cistercian Quarterly. It's a, a series of articles that they publish. And this letter got republished in 1981. But what's interesting is when it was republished, they didn't say he was in his bare feet on the floor. They said he was in his wet bare feet on the floor. They inserted the word wet in 1981. Wow. The, the original letter that was sent out was sent out just to the monks in the community. When they published it in their Cistercian Quarterly, they added the word wet. Now, that's very devious to do that. You don't need to add that word. That wasn't in the original letter. But they were trying to make it look like Merton killed himself. It was Merton's own fault, and they've been continually called him clumsy. They said that he was uh, you know, just a, a klutz, and he was very careless, and they put all the blame for his death on him. And I, I can understand why they would do that because I'm sure a lot of attorneys would tell them that they could sue the Hitachi Fan Company or the Red Cross Center because uh, they were responsible for an accident that shouldn't have happened. And this is a guy that makes a lot of money for their monastery, and now he's suddenly dead. 
well, somebody should be accountable just for the safety of other people so they don't get killed by these killer fans. I'm sure there were plenty of attorneys that would have wanted to get in on that lawsuit. Sure. But then the Abbey twisted things around and said, oh, no, 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 no. It wasn't Hitachi's fault. It wasn't the Red Cross. It was Merton's fault because he was wet from his shower. And they what made you, that up. And why, made, what's the incentive or what's why is the Gethsemane uh, Monastery, what, what's your opinion on why they're keeping that story? Well, that's a good question. We really don't know. I mean, we can speculate. I, I, I did find out uh, since our book was written that Merton wanted to leave that abbey and he wanted to transfer to another religious community. And uh, just a year before he died, they had him sign a paper that in the event of his death, that all of his royalties in, in writings would become the property of the monastery and the Merton Legacy Trust so that the money would go to the abbey. Well, you know, if he left that abbey and went to another community, he might have taken his royalties with him. Yeah, there's a lot of competitive. There's some things that happen in and those monasteries, uh, too, that, that rivalries and groups and stuff. Yeah, Right. That could be one reason. I mean, these people are not good people. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, there was a sentence we didn't put in our book that we were going to put in originally. And uh, several religious people told me we should have left it in because it's very true. And that was this. We had written that people make a big mistake when they think that people who join a, a, a religious community in a life of prayer are not vulnerable to the same sins as everyone else. And these monks, I mean, we like to think of them as being holier than the rest of us because they pray all day, but they are, we're all, all of us are, 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 are capable of some very serious sins. And uh, the monks at the Abbey remind me of the brothers of, of uh, Joseph in the book of Genesis. You remember they sold him into slavery. Right. And then they lied about it and said that a beast had devoured him. Well, the monks at the Abbey of Gethsemane have not uh, come clean. And they hid the documents. They had these uh, original documents, the death certificate, the doctor's certificate. I found a letter from the embassy all those documents had been sent to the Abbey. They knew that those documents did not say accidental electrocution. They said, they said, you know, cardiac arrest, sudden heart failure. Now they knew that was not the official cause, but they would tell people that they'd seen all the documents and that he was accidentally electrocuted. Well, they never showed the documents. They just told people what they saw. This is what the documents say. They misrepresented them. And then they made up the shower story. This is not good. This is not good. This is not being honest. So I have, I, you know, I went down to that abbey because I wanted to meet with some of the monks. And uh, I went there in 2019 and they told me I shouldn't have come there. They refused wow. to meet with me. And I, I was disappointed that I didn't get to talk to anybody, but uh, they don't like me down there. And I, I tell you, uh, they're hiding something, really. They're hiding the truth. And they hid those photographs. They had those photographs. They knew about them and they concealed and, they, and we asked for permission to publish drawings of the photographs in our book. And they said, no, we're not giving you permission. You can't publish even a drawing of the photographs. Wow. That's and, incredible. I mean, what, what, why, why? Let's get everything out in the light. That which is truth comes to the light. That's what it says in the, in the scripture. And that which is evil and false seeks the darkness. And they've kept this stuff in the darkness. And to this day, that International Thomas Merton Society is still embracing people that uh, perpetuate this story that Merton died by accidental electrocution. And there's no evidence to support that. There isn't any evidence to support that. Right. And so he was only 53. Mm -hmm. And they, when they picked up that original Hitachi, they said it had a, nobody died when they touched it. Right. Didn't somebody touch right. it? No, yeah, shock? The one guy, his name was uh, Egbert, uh, no, Odo Haas. He touched it. He was going to try to move it, but he wasn't able to grab it really. Cause as soon as he touched it, he recoiled because it gave him a shock. And he told, the Filipino later that it was just a slight shock. Right. But, but they never would put that much electricity through any home appliance. No. Home tons of people would be dead all the time. It's ridiculous. So yeah, you don't die. Real problem. Dryers, toasters. I mean, these commonplace household appliances, and I don't care if they're 220, and this was a 220 volt fan. 220 will give you a jolt, and you can ask anybody that works as an electrical contractor, they'll tell you it'll give you a good jolt. But it's still household current in most of the world. It's not going to kill you. It's not going to kill you. Do you mind, Hugh, if I put up, you and Dave sent me that little excerpt from the Wikipedia page for Thomas Merton. Do you mind addressing that? Is that all right? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Let me see if I can pull that up. Because you mentioned in your book 
John, uh, Douglas was the author of JFK and the Unspeakable, and yeah. he's mentioned in here as well. That's an excellent book, by the way, James W. Douglas. I think he's also a, a Catholic, too. But yes, he... uh, it says here, in 2016, theologian Matthew Fox claimed that Merton had been assassinated by agents of the Central Intelligence Agency. James W. w. Douglas made a similar claim in 1997. In 2018, Hugh Turley and David Martin published The Martyrdom of Thomas Merton, an investigation questioning the claim of accidental electrocution. And then 2021, Professor Joseph Quinn Robb, editor of the Merton Annual, wrote, it is no longer plausible to conclude that Merton's death was the result of accidental electrocution. Well, good, for, good for Professor Robb. He, he's a... Uh... He's one of the only people really in that International Thomas Merton Society that's, uh, that's actually publicly stated this, that it's no longer plausible, as he said, to conclude that Merton's death was a result of accidental electrocution. And he's right about that. He wrote a book, a Merton book, uh, that was published earlier this year. And this was uh, in a, uh, a footnote on page three of his book. And uh, I congratulate Professor Rob. It's, it's a start, but it's going to take more people because there are numerous authors that have published books since our book that continue the story with uh, that he was killed by an air conditioner, a fan, and took a shower, took a bath, and said, et cetera, et cetera. It just goes on. Right. It's really amazing. I mean, it's incredible how that story really stuck, and it just shows that these people can really, let's see if I can put this up. People can really, like, keep these stories going forever. This is the guy right here, too, right? Opening New Horizons. Yeah, he's a good fellow. I, I have uh, communicated with him, but uh, we tried to get, he, he's a co-editor of the uh, the Merton Annual, and, and Dave and I submitted an article, but they wouldn't publish it. He is a co-editor, you know, and if somebody can, if one of them doesn't want it in there, we don't get in there. So I guess right. the, other, right. the other editor kept us out. But And we, we wanted to speak at their conference, uh, and they, they didn't want us there either. Uh, I have done some speaking. I, I spoke to uh, the Benedictine community here in Washington, D.C. at St. Anselm's Abbey. I actually spoke at the high school there, and it's a private prep school for boys. And then the uh, abbot was impressed with my talk and asked me to come back and give a talk to the monks. And I thought it was interesting when I ended up speaking at a Benedictine monastery because the conference where Merton died was organized by Benedictines. And the people that discovered his body and took those photographs were all Benedictines. And they were the ones that, that saved the documents, that uh, took the photographs, that wrote all these letters. That uh, It's really because of the Benedictine community that we, we know so much about uh, Merton's death. If you were relying on the Trappists, you wouldn't know anything. In fact, I asked them uh, at Dave Martin's suggestion, after we had gotten copies of the official Thai documents from the National Archives and also from Rembert Weekland, who was present in Thailand at the time. He, he brought some documents back with him. Well, we got copies from those two places. And since we knew that the Abbey had been sent the same documents by the U.S. Embassy, the death certificate, doctor certificate, embassy report, we thought that the Abbey would have copies as well. And we wanted to see if their copies were the same as what we had. Did, did, did their copy say accidental electrocution? You know, we maybe it did. So I asked the uh, archivist at the Abbey if we could see their copies of the documents. And what do you think he said? Something tells me no. We don't have them, he said. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. We don't crazy. have them. How could you lose that? The other thing is that Martin had like a future. For only 53, he could have written more books. I got to go back and look through some of his books. But also he was up under the attention, and I think you mentioned it in your book, it was Claire Booth Luce, right? The, her husband is the head of Time and the Skull and Bones member. So mm -hmm. he was on their radar of elite kind of groups. And oh, it was... Uh, yeah, yeah, people it was knew more, about him for yeah. sure. And yeah, he, was, he was... Uh, he, on the radar. President Johnson didn't like him either. He wrote letters. He wrote... Merton wrote, they say, 10,000 letters. Yeah. And he, he wrote to a lot of people. And I think he told President Johnson that he was immoral. And Johnson... Which is true. Yeah, Johnson didn't like that. He didn't like I that. Bet. He would call that hate mail. So, you know. Well, you can talk about the bodies all surrounding him too. I mean, holy smokes. Yeah. It's not just JFK, but uh, right. 
Yeah, this is a great book. I highly recommend this book. Where can people find this? You and what's your social media if people want to reach out and, and well, contact we just you? Have, we have a website called the martyrdom of Thomas Merton.com. It's all one long word, the martyrdom of Thomas Merton.com. And then the book, of course, is at Amazon. It's available in a Kindle version or a, a paperback. And uh, it's it's uh, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's something that needs to be written. I'm, I'm glad that uh, Dave and I did it. And Dave's Dave's a great writer. He's a much better writer than I am. I'm I'm good at the research end of it, but uh, I I told him he had to help me write this, and he uh, he said, "No, it's yours. It's your book." And I said, "No, it's you're going to have to help me." And he did help. And he's a good thinker right? too. He's very good. He's a very good thinker. He's you know. So one of these documents uh, that was a false document, he he just picked up on it. He, he started to ask me about the document. I was, yeah, and he said, well, he said, it doesn't make sense. And then we started to look at the document more closely, and and it became, it just sort of came into focus that it was, it was a, a fake document. Right, and you kind of mentioned in your book, you you reference your guys' experience in Vince Foster of changing right. names, misspelling Knowlton intentionally, all these little tricks. Right, these guys yeah. Know how to play. yeah. Yeah, when well, well, you had some experience, because like like the Thai police report misspelled the names of all the witnesses. Right. I mean, it's I mean they're phonetically sort of there, but they're just totally misspelled. And so if anybody wanted to run them down or check them out, you'd, you'd never find them. Of course, I found them because I found correspondence between the Filipino monk and other people and, and so on. So I, 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 I went to several libraries. I went to the University of Virginia. There were some papers there from a journalist named John Moffat, who had been at the conference in um, Thailand. And he corresponded with uh, Francois de Groon quite a bit. And I, I found quite a bit of papers there. And then there were papers at Northwestern University that came from uh, Michael Mott, who had the, he wrote the authorized biography. So he had some documents. And then uh, John Howard Griffin had quite a, a treasure, including the, those photographs and his papers up at Columbia. It's surprising he kept them. Right, there it is. I mean, that, he, that he didn't just destroy them, but, it, but, you know, sometimes criminals just hang on to stuff. You know, they don't want to throw it away. Yeah, but you know, who could anticipate somebody following through on what really happened? You know, thirty years after the event, so forty years. Right, right. Well, just nobody. It's it surprised me that nobody looked into this. Just nobody bothered to get the basic documents or go read the basic letters and correspondence and things just to just to look at it. I mean, nobody bothered. They just, and one, one scholar after another would just repeat what the previous one said. Right. And just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And, and then when we did make these discoveries, uh, we mistakenly thought that people would be interested in, in the truth, but of course they're not. It's just this human nature. We live in a fallen world. <laughs> they're just, they're gonna stick with the old story Right. I mean, it's really incredible what the media has gotten away with and these stories. And I, you can see these stories, how lies get perpetrated and, and get disseminated. And it's really a shame. But uh, is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap this up other than your website, which is the martyrdom of Thomas Merton.com? Oh, I think I'd like to close with a poem. Okay, good. David Martin is the poet and he wrote some nice poems about Merton. I, 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 this one's called the Thomas Merton's martyrdom. They say his death was meaningless. That's what they want us to swallow. But in light of all the evidence, their argument rings hollow. His life was full of purpose, but we must to the world confide. His words had no more meaning than the things for which he died. That's David Martin. David Martin. Yeah. And again, the authors are Hugh Turley and David Martin. The title of the book again is The Martyrdom of Thomas Merton, an Investigation. Thank you so much, you. Thank you for having me.